0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Barischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Good afternoon, happy Thursday afternoon to you. Good to have you along. Very shortly, catching up with resource analyst Tim Treadgold, who is not surprised that another local potash company has gone into voluntary administration. In fact, he doesn't think the local potash industry has much of a future here in Western Australia, and he'll tell you why shortly. Also today, can you imagine trying to seed in a month when you get sort of between 200 and 250 mils of rain? Well, that's what cotton farmers try to do. But today you're going to hear a suggestion from a cotton farmer on WA's far north that might make it a little bit easier. Collaboration between
2: farmers. We need to let our egos go. So obviously my planter is better than my neighbours and I'm much better at planting than uh, the crops than he is. And if we don't lose that attitude, it's not going to work. And we also need to really learn to be other-orientated. In other words, um, I need to be able to go and leave my farm to plant my neighbours for two days, even though I might lose one day of opportunity on our own place.
1: Fritz Bolton's Nuffield Scholarship is based on this collaboration concept and you'll hear more about it a little later this hour. Six past twelve here on the Country Hour. Traditional owners are distressed by the destruction of cultural heritage at a copper mine in the Murchison. Last week, Sandfire Resources publicly apologised for the disturbance of artefact scatter at its Degrasa mine, 150 kilometres north of Mekathara. The company says the disturbance happened in 2017 and 2018, but the traditional owners, the Yagunana people, were only made aware last month. Franklin Gaffney is a lawyer representing the yaganana people, and he says there's been a lack of oversight.
3: We have been informed by Sanfire that Two heritage sites, or scatters as they would like to characterise it, which had around 90 artefacts, were disturbed and destroyed sometime between 2016 uh, to 2018. Uh, Sandfire originally found out about this in October 2022, and they didn't notify uh, the group until October 2023. In one case, roughly around a two-storey, high mound of earth was placed on top of the artifacts. And in the other example, tracks were driven straight through the artifact site. The company so- has told us that this occurred because there were heritage surveys took place in 2016. And those heritage surveys had indicated that they should be sealed off. Um, and that can be done by barriers or by picket fences to ensure that nothing happens and no, you know, no, nobody goes in to disturb the sites they didn't put those fences up and as a result of that, and they didn't put the GPS coordinates into their system, or if they did, no one was reading the system. And subsequently the mine was placed on top of it or parts of the operating mines was placed on top of it and uh, roads were built through the sites.
4: And what's your and, and you know the, the traditional owners of this area response to hearing that?
3: Well, we were shocked by it. There was no oversight. um, Any of the sort of the checks and balances that had been put in place and that were envisaged under the Native Title Agreement and in the Heritage Survey reports were never implemented. And unfortunately, this destruction of the artifact sites have occurred because uh, a lack of oversight. The first thing that most people would know that when you make a mistake, you own up to it and then you address it. In this case, a mistake happened. They didn't own up to it. It took them a year to to notify the Aboriginal people and the younger than people in Megathera about it. They then advised the younger than people in Megathera that it was a systems failure. Uh, they then advised that they did an re- internal investigation uh, only after, I think it was probably around six months of knowing that it had occurred, but somehow the CEO wasn't aware of the internal investigation from April which commenced in April and he said he became aware of it in September. It does sound a bit like a Monty Python show that the timeframes don't add up and no one seems to be taking responsibility for the destruction of something that is very important and the group hold uh, very dear to themselves.
4: The Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage has started an investigation. What's your hope of of what's to come out of that investigation?
3: From just a, a basic on a human level, it would be good if the CEO and the chairman of the board came out and apologised to the people, looked for themselves at the destruction that's that's taken place. And in terms of how sorry they are, that they provide some sort of tangible benefit for the group to compensate them for the destruction of their cultural heritage.
4: What could that tangible benefit be, do you think?
3: That's a matter of discussion between between Sandfire and my client. But there are many things that could take place. I mean, Samfar have offered uh, the group the contract to uh, fence off all remaining heritage sites. That was, should have occurred in any event um, after they were identified in the heritage survey reports. Megathera, it is a place where there's not a lot of opportunities. Um, housing is very difficult. There is some community housing. One of the options that could be explored is assisting the group into housing. They currently are in, in housing that they do not own and what we were looking at the possibility is maybe that they could help with a buyback scheme so as part of the group becoming self-determined and having some control over their lives is that they'd be able to move into their own homes the group just want to explore these with the with uh, sanfire and uh, if sanfire ceo and chairperson uh, would like to come to to Megathera and uh, talk to the group, they'd be more than welcome to come along and uh, sit down at the community hall and have that discussion. The other aspect
4: to it is the statute of limitations, which under the current, you know, what's currently in law in terms of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act is 12 months, I understand. So uh, would there be, I, mean, I know the Premier said if there was, um, if it uh, arose and was necessary, prosecution could be on the, on the table for this. But it sounds as though that wouldn't be possible because of the statute of limitations.
3: That's as with, as with a lot of legal matters, it's the technicalities that that might catch people up and it is a technicality. So the statute of limitations is a, is, is a mechanism to put in place so that if something does go wrong, it can be addressed as soon as possible. And if you fall outside the statute of limitations, the courts don't have the authority to hear a matter. Um, or I should say they can hear a matter but they don't have the authority to pass a sentence or or impose a penalty. If uh, it is found that there was a disturbance of our Aboriginal heritage site under the Aboriginal Heritage Act uh, it is unlikely at this point in time that there could be a prosecution because of the statute of limitations. There may be ways around that but that would be the normal course of action. They'd say unfortunately the time has passed and we will not be able to impose a Lawyer
1: representing Yaganane traditional owners, Franklin Gaffney, speaking to Michelle Stanley. Sandfire Resources CEO Brendan Harris has apologised unreservedly for the disturbance and says the company will be undertaking a thorough investigation to determine the root cause. There's more on the story online for you. Just search ABC Sandfire Artifacts. Michelle Michelle's story. 13 past 12. Resource analyst Tim Treadgold says he is not surprised at all that another local potash company has gone into voluntary administration. Late yesterday, administrators were appointed to Australian Potash Limited. Over the last 12 months, the Perth-based company undertook a process to raise capital to advance the Lake Wells Sulfate of Potash project in the northern goldfields which ultimately proved unsuccessful. Administrators were also called in earlier this year for Pilbara potash producer Callium Lakes, which operates the Biondi project near Newman, and Salt Lake potash is also in the hands of administrators. Tim Treadgold, what is going on with potash?
5: There are two big factors at work which seem to escape us in Australia. One is that the price of potash has crashed. I mean, uh, at the moment, you can buy a tonne of uh, potassium chloride, which is the myriad of potash. I won't bother to go into the details of what these things are. But it's fallen from $622 a tonne a year ago to $341 a tonne. Now, that is an absolute wipeout. So anyone in that industry is hemorrhaging badly. Now, the other issue, which is just as important, if not more so, is that potash is not in short supply. and That's obviously shown in the price, but the fact that two of the world's biggest mining companies, BHP and Anglo-American, are both entering the potash industry at the same time with new world-class projects, BHP at Janssen in Canada uh, and Anglo-American in Yorkshire uh, with a mine whose name escapes me at the moment, but it's, it's a very big development <clears throat> like BHP, and those two mines will fill the world market for decades to come.
1: So why have we seen over you know more recent years some players entering the market here in Western Australia?
5: Well, uh, you're absolutely right in asking the question, but it's not quite right. You said entering the market. In fact, they've never entered the market. They've raised a lot of money for investors to develop projects which haven't happened. Why is that so? The potash they're trying to develop is hard to get out. It's actually basically scraping the surface of old dried salt lakes. Uh, Some of those salt lakes are located uh, a thousand or more kilometres from the coast. So you run into this classic Australian problem called the tyranny of distance and no one seemed to be bothered to ask the question, how are you going to get it from mine to port? There are no railways and in fact some of the salt lakes out near the WA Northern Territory border, there aren't even any roads. So the whole thing was farcical. The money raised should not have been raised. The money raised was wasted. It's just it's classic Australian boom time stuff. Someone has a bright idea and said, look, we can scrape the top off these lakes and we can make potash. Yes, you can in a laboratory uh, and out next to the lake, but it's not commercial. Never was, probably never will be.
1: Right, so basically the days of um, trying to raise money, investment, to develop one of these projects, to actually enter the market. Those days have gone. It's, it's dead.
5: Over. Dead as a dodo. It should have died years ago. It should have died when it became obvious that the mechanics of it, the technology of it, while looking simple, and in fact the mining process is, uh, has been uh, likened to gardening, you just scrape the top off and let it dry in the sun or you pump up the liquids with uh, potash in them and let them dry in the sun. I mean, it just wasn't going to work. And it saddens me that so many people got sucked in by it.
1: Does it go in cycles, though, Tim? I mean, I know you've been around a long time, so does this sort of go quiet for a it, while in another 10 years or so somebody else comes it, in to it, try it, their it,
5: it, You're trying to tell me I'm old. are You, you just can't, just can't <laughs> bring yourself to say it. <laughs> um, they, they, it does come in cycles, but this is the first potash cycle. Now, that's the first potash cycle in... What, how old's Australia now? How old? Uh, let's pick it, let's say 200 years. So maybe there'll be another potash cycle in 200 years' time. I won't be around to see it. No, the, the, the issue is potash is not in short supply. There are buckets of the stuff in Europe, in Russia, in Germany. Canada is absolutely full of the stuff. I mean, the potash they, they mine is actually an old sea floor where the material has been deposited there And it runs across hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of square kilometres. The only problem is you've got to dig down a long way to get it. But once you get there, you just harvest it. So we've got nothing like that in Australia. Uh, And they they will fill the market for a long time.
1: Tim, good to talk to you. Thank you. OK. Resource analyst Tim Treadgold responding to the news that administrators have been appointed to Australian Potash Limited. The administrators intend to pursue a realisation strategy involving the sale of APC's business and assets and or a recapitalisation of the company via deed of company agreement. The administrators will collaborate closely with the company's employees and suppliers to preserve value for stakeholders. 19 past 12. We'll check in with the news headlines as always, around about half past 12. Then the weather, and yes, then we'll take a look at the cotton situation in the north of the state in the Kimberley. Sort of a collaboration effort might be the key moving forward. We'll get into that shortly. First, though, a big WA cattle producer says he's focused on the technology available to industry today to reduce methane emissions rather than give any thought to the possibility of Australia introducing a methane tax on livestock sometime in the future. Now, this follows the conversation we had here on the Country Hour yesterday with CEO of WA Farmers, Trevor Whittington. Trevor's convinced Australia's decision to sign up to the voluntary global methane pledge means we are one step closer to the introduction of a tax – Ivan Rogers is the general manager of Kyla Cattle Company. That's the trading arm of the family-run, diversified agribusiness that has a farm, feedlot and cattle business based at Tammon, 180 kilometres east of Perth, and a cattle breeding operation at Augusta, 300 kilometres south of Perth. Ivan, how do you look at this pledge and the implications of it?
6: I probably look at this through the lens of our business I guess initially Belinda and I'm sure that there's going to be both industry and political ramifications of course there always is but from our own particular business which is running a significant amount of beef cattle we need to we do understand that methane is a real emission it is a real greenhouse gas and we need to understand more about that emission and we also need to understand what steps there are that we can take there that we can abate that emission. So, I, I guess I guess having a we've certainly come to within our own business we've come to the conclusion that that this is something which we need to be considering very much so, and we're also pleased that MLA and the Australian livestock industry is taking that position as well.
1: So, what sort of measures are you putting in place now? in your business to address this issue which is probably really in its early kind of stages but it's definitely going to kick in a little bit down the track
6: yeah look it is in its early stages and i don't think we understand fully the life cycle of methane and there's some debate around that so i think we do need to understand that and nor do we understand the abatement opportunities to us so there's clearly some feed additives which we can be using so in our business which is a mix of both extensive grazing um, on the south coast and we've got a feedlotting business we've got two different opportunities there certainly within the intensive industry we have the opportunity of of feed additives and there's been some great research that has been conducted into into those products with Asparagopsis being one of those and some other products some synthetic products were being been worked on as well so I guess we've got those, but there is also a number of smaller things which we can do. that are They're not one percenters. They're more two, three, four, five percenters, and that's how we use our feed. We use feed vegetable oil, for example, and that's proven to be reasonably effective in, in reducing methane emissions. So I think we just need to look at a whole suite of things, which is pretty standard for agriculture when you're looking for solutions.
1: Why do you do it, Ivan? What, what drives you to explore these? options
6: well we are a values based business we have a sustainability strategy and we have ESG at the heart of that so environmental people and animals and i don't think you can run a business like ours have a sustainability strategy and not be considering the impact of methane so we need to understand more about that and so we'll look for research opportunities where we do understand more of that but but i guess to your question is I think there's it's a lot around integrity about sustainability, and we also have our brand partners that we supply, and we talk constantly to our brand partners, and they have a have a very strong interest in this because essentially they are our connect to the consumer, and they they're telling us that uh, that the consumer is becoming more and more aware and and seeking supply and products that are considering sustainability.
1: I'm assuming you're referring to your deal with Coles to supply zero carbon beef. Is that where you're getting that feedback from, from what the shoppers going to Coles are telling the supermarket?
6: Uh, From Coles, but also from other brand partners. So Coles aren't our only brand partners, but certainly we have high level conversations with Coles and we talk about this particular issue. And, you know, we're encouraged by the approach that they're taking. But I can also say from our other brand partners, and there is also others that custom feed, use our services, and they're, they're bringing us the same story. So it's a consistent story.
4: So if you
1: want to be selling product in the future, this is definitely something you need to be considering. Is that, that's the point?
6: Not not every brand. I don't think Belinda will be considering this, but certainly our brands are. And so we're, we're very reactive to working with our brands. But yeah, I wouldn't sort of su- suggest that it's going to be across the board, but I think we've also seen across the board we've sort of seen industry taking a, a a proactive approach to this issue.
1: Now, Ivan, I know we said in the conversation earlier that this is really early stages, but do you think a mm. a, a, a tax, a methane tax on livestock, is likely here in Australia one day?
6: Look, I I haven't turned my mind to that, and I guess I don't really think about it in terms of taxes. I would be thinking about how do we support our um, our, our, our brand partners who are reflecting consumer attitude, and I would suspect that we'll probably sort of see brands, a number of brands, that they'll be starting to put some guardrails around their product and they'll be looking for product that does have elements of sustainability and there'll be a whole range in that that'll be from those that, that are that are right at the top to those that are just probably probably what you might call a light touch. So not so sure about the tax. It's not something which I turn my mind to as a as a producer and in the and in the beef supply chain. But I do suspect that we'll see more and more demand from our various brand partners. Do
1: you think, I mean, and this picks up on a conversation we had yesterday with WA Farmers CEO Trevor Whittington. He was saying the idea of a tax would actually be to try and reduce the herd here in Australia. Um, Is that something that you would consider? If a tax was implemented, would you be thinking, oh, well, you know, now I need to kind of, you know, cut back on my numbers?
6: I haven't even turned my mind to that to be honest. So it's not something that's on my radar, Belinda, and it's I don't think that we would be heading in that direction. I, I really think that the Australian beef industry has got a huge amount to offer and I can't sort of see that there would be a system put in place that would look at reducing those numbers or, or essentially reducing the, the industry.
1: Ivan, really good to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks, Belinda. Ivan Rogers, he is the General Manager of the Kyla Cattle Company. 27 past 12. The amount of dairy products being imported into Australia has increased substantially in the last 20 years. In the 1999-2000 financial year, they accounted for 11% of dairy products sold in Australia. That figure is now up to 27%. Dairy Australia analyst Eliza Redfern says that's not good news for Australia's dairy farmers.
7: Yeah, well, Australia is becoming a, a much more prominent dairy importer, and you know the the types of products that Australia is imported from in it from a dairy perspective um, has has changed a lot over time. I mean, cheese is still a, a really consistent, um, a consistently large product in terms of in terms of the market share of the volume that we're bringing in. But the reality is, is in today's market, we're we're bringing in a whole a whole variety of different products. And and you know we've seen that those imported volumes increasing, particularly over over the last season coming in, and you know that that price difference between Australian dairy products compared to the international products um, has has had a part to play there too. And so, you know, we see that a lot of those imported products tend to be more incorporated within that, you know, that ingredient, that food service space. Um, But we know that across many different food categories um, that the major retailers have been increasing that offering of imported products over several years um of course so um there is that you know that increased presence and offering of imported products and 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 it is putting pressure on on australian australian dairy products as well and we've seen that both you know on on the global stage and also domestically of course within our own market so you know even though we are australia we are still impacted by what is happening globally and and those global factors
4: I mean, personally, I've seen a a lot more foreign brands on the supermarket shelves in the cheese section. Lots of cheeses from New Zealand, which are notably a fair bit cheaper than Australian products. What does this put pressure on uh, milk prices for next season, Eliza?
7: It's a good question, and and you know, as we know, there's a lot that that um, that drives that that milk prices picture. Um, but it, but it does have a part to play. Um, you know. We are Australia, but we are still impacted by, by what's happening globally and, and by global products. So, um, you know, it is putting pressure on, on our product values. And there is, you know, some implications for, for next season's farm milk prices when we get to that point um, halfway through next year.
1: Dairy Australia analyst Eliza Redfern speaking to Megan Powell. And Dairy Australia has just released its latest quarterly report and outlook for dairy, including some emerging challenges such as the pressure of cheaper imported goods on Australian producers. It is, well... Bang on, half past 12. Perfect timing this afternoon. Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the headlines.
8: Good afternoon, Belinda. The principal of Corrine Senior High School in Perth's North says there's been a serious incident involving two students this morning. Police and St John Ambulance were called to the school amid reports two children were injured. St John have confirmed a girl was taken to Perth Children's Hospital at normal road speed while a boy was taken to Royal Perth Hospital. The Principal says the incident was quickly contained and there is no cause, no more cause for alarm. Health warnings on individual cigarettes and new graphic images on cigarette packets will begin to roll out next year after legislation to crack down on smoking passed Federal Parliament. Industry and retailers will have a 12-month transition period to comply with the new requirements. Health Minister Mark Butler says existing warnings have lost their impact. And in the AFL, Dockers forward Sam Sturt will be sidelined for several weeks after having minor knee surgery. The 23-year-old had a scan on his left knee after experiencing pain following pre-season training on Monday. Fremantle says Sturt is expected to return to full training in mid to late January. Thanks, Belinda.
1: Thank you so much for the update, Jonathan. Appreciate that. It's 29 to 1 here on The Country Hours Still to come, up to $8 billion is going to be spent each year on mine closures up until 2040. But a new landmark report from the CSIRO looks at all the opportunities for Australian industry from mine closure and remediation, and we'll hear what those are shortly on the Country Hour. We'll also catch up with the fishermen taking a look at the uh, lobster season, how it's going. The prices aren't great, but there are quite a few around. All the details shortly. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Luke Huntington. Let's start with a look around the Southwest Land Division.
9: Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. So um, we do have a trough running through the um, sort of the eastern parts of the southwest land division around the Esperance area at the moment. Uh, We are seeing a couple of thunderstorms just to the northeast of Esperance moving through quite quite quickly. They haven't got much rainfall associated with them at the moment. But um, this afternoon when the thunderstorms really get going, um, there could be a little bit of rainfall around that southeast coastal district um, around sort of two to eight millimeters and maybe slightly higher if you do get a couple more showers and thunderstorms moving over the same location. Um, and then elsewhere over the southwest land division, we are forecasting thunderstorms over uh, central and eastern parts of the wheat belt, so probably east of about Cunderdon and then over eastern parts of the Great Southern, east of about Wagen. Um, again, those thunderstorms mostly this afternoon, but those thunderstorms are probably going to have less rainfall than the Esperance ones, so maybe only zero to two millimetres uh, in those storms, so not too much with those ones through that area. Um, but we will will see those thunderstorms um, contract to the far eastern parts of the southwest landing division by tomorrow so probably east of Esperance and they'll probably clear during the, the early morning um, but other than that there may be some light showers just in the onshore flow uh, just along the south coast, just in the, waste of, in the wake of those thunderstorms. So anywhere between um, sort of windy harbour across to Esperance could pick up a light shower uh, tomorrow. Uh, but elsewhere around the southwest land division, it's looking um, relatively clear, although it'll be a little bit windy um, through certain areas, just as a uh, new ridge pushes in tomorrow. And certainly over the weekend, um, it'll become quite windy just with that fresh and gusty southeasterly uh, surge moving right through the southwest land division. And that'll clear out um, any uh, showers or thunderstorms. Um, The air is quite dry with that southeasterly surge. And it's going to push in some uh, cooler air as well. So temperatures will be going back to the sort of the mid-20s through a large part of the southwest land division, probably hitting about 30 degrees through the central west uh, district. So many places will be sort of near or below average temperatures uh, for for the weekend. Um, And and that uh, gusty southeasterly surge will probably, Increase the fire dangers for western parts of the Southwest Land Division as well. Specifically through the through the Central West District and the Lower West, um, we're going for extreme fire dangers uh, in that area o- over the weekend. Um, and then as we head into Monday, um, similar conditions. Um, the the highs still to the south, and we still see that gusty southeasterly winds. So um, we're not expecting any rainfall um, over the Monday period. So. Yeah, you're relatively quiet after today for the, for the southwest land division.
1: All right, let's uh, move into northern and eastern parts. What have you got?
9: Yeah, um, over the uh, northern eastern parts, again, uh, showers and thunderstorms are forecast over the Kimberley, uh, the interior eastern Pilbara, and then over the Goldfields uh, region uh, and into the Eucla. Um, So, again, probably the best chance of getting rainfall in that area would be over the Kimberley area and over southern parts of the Goldfields. Um, Over the southern Goldfields, again, around 2 to 8 millimetres, and over the Kimberley, a little bit more, around 20 to 30 millimetres in certain parts. Um, I forgot to mention, as well, those thunderstorms over the southern Goldfields and Esperance area could produce uh, damaging wind gusts this afternoon. So there is a, a possibility that a thunderstorm warning could be issued for those damaging wind gusts if, if we see them. Um, and then heading into Friday, um, with that ridge coming in, all the thunderstorm activity is going to be pushed uh, to the northern parts of the state. So the Kimberley, the north interior and the Pilbara area. And then further north into the Kimberley on Sunday and into the northern eastern part Parts of the Kimberley on Monday. So um, we do see that southeasterly surge push right up into central and northern parts of the state over the weekend into early next week. So that'll bring some much cooler air, uh, drier and cooler air. So um, relief from the hot temperatures we've been seeing through that area. Yeah, there've been a few stinking hot days in
1: that part. Now, you did mention a couple of um, warnings. Can you recap for us?
9: Yeah, so um, we do have a heatwave warning out. Um, as I mentioned, a, s- a severe heatwave warning. Um, that's for parts of the Pilbara, Gascoyne, North Interior, and South Interior. And we also have a fire weather warning for the Ashburton Coast and Mortlock Fire Weather Districts today. Um, and then just a wind warning um, for a lot of the uh, a lot of the coastline actually.
1: Great. Thank you for going through those details, Luke. Twenty-four to one. Richard Hudson here now with a look at the rainfall.
9: Yeah, in the northern and
0: eastern forecast districts, most of the rain was in the Kimberley again. Curtin Airport, 14. Derby had 27. Dampier Downs and Diggers Rest both recorded eight. Fitzroy Crossing, 11. Cunanara at the checkpoint, 20 mils. Leopold Downs, 17, Mount Barnett, 6, Nicholson, 21, Theta 7, Wyndham, 10 and Yampy Sound, 16. Nothing worth reading out from the Pilbara or the Gascoyne. In the interior, Lorna Glen had two. In the Goldfields, Ejudina 3. Uh, in the Euclid district, nothing nothing out on the islands and no rain recorded anywhere at all in the South Land Division forecast districts. But just quickly, due to the risk of fire, a few shires have imposed a total fire ban for today, currently in place. So Ashburton, Dalwallinu, Korda and Wongan-Balladieu. So that means no open fires, no hot work such as metalwork, grinding, welding, gas cutting, except for business and industry if regulatory conditions are met. No off-road, driving, of four-wheel drives, quad bikes, motorbikes, bobcats, etc., Uh, And if a harvest and vehicle movement ban has been imposed by your local government, any off-road activity is also banned for uh, agriculture, unless uh, you've got exemptions for some reason. Um, For a full list of what you can and can't do during a total fire ban, again, just search D-F-E-S and total fire bans. Thanks, Richard. 22 to 1. You're with Belinda Barrisgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Well, farmers in Kununurra's Ord Valley will soon be making preparations for an early 2024 cotton planting. Each year, one of their biggest challenges is handling conditions caused by heavy wet season rain. But one of the farmers is Fritz Bolton, whose recent Nuffield scholarship concluded that cotton crops in the north are best planted mid-February, which is the wettest month of the year. He says there are a number of reasons why it's worthwhile planting in such challenging conditions.
2: We now need to plant a substantial amount of crops in February so that we have maximum radiation and temperature, bowl filling and fibre production. Um, If we plant earlier, we get too um, too many overcast days during that peak demand and if we plant later, we get cold weather during our winter. And rain risk at picking.
10: What's the rainfall in February to put that in That's context? Two hundred
2: to two hundred and fifty millimetres of rain, and let's just say it rains twice a week, and we need five to seven days of dry weather to be able to get onto these vertisol soils, these, these heavy clay, self-marching soils. So it's in a from from that perspective, it's impossible. There's there's about ten to fourteen. Planting opportunities in February on average.
10: So how do you do it then? What did you find after how many years of research?
2: Um, so I've, I applied for the Nuffield Scholarship three years ago. My topic was around finding biological and/or mechanical solutions. Look, the key finding is that we need to learn how to collaborate. So if we as growers were to all work together and everybody pool their resources, and skill sets so that we all go where the conditions are right, where it's dry, we can get all the planting done. But we need to have, we need to let our egos go. So obviously my planter is better than my neighbours and I'm much better at planting than uh, the crops than he is. And if we don't lose that attitude, it's not gonna work. And we also need to really learn to be other orientated. In other words, um, I need to be able to go and leave my farm to plant my neighbours for two days even though I might lose one days of opportunity on our own place so that as a as a whole we plant crops at the right time.
3: Is that
10: something that you see happening like have you already started this process of do you take your planter over to your neighbours if their paddocks ready in yours isn't?
2: Definitely yep so um, we planted all of our neighbours cotton this year we planted our we planted his chia. We work together on harvesting those crops. The, the culture is there already. And the key is to, to start this collaboration on a small scale with the right, right neighbours. Show everybody else that it can work and what the benefits are and what the risks are. We need to be really open about the pros and cons. And I think if we, if we have the culture and the mindset, that collaboration, is the way to go. It can take us to so many more levels. You know, we can all of a sudden become large scale farmers with on a family farm structure.
10: How does it work in practice? I, I think every farmer has an experience of maybe loaning a big piece of gear to the neighbor and, and not getting it back in time, or or maybe feeling a bit guess, shorthanded at the end of it.
2: Yeah, I think it's, um, f- firstly, we need to embrace the, the concept to know that there's going to be some failures and some pain as well as the benefits. And I think there's a there's a good chance that it can work, but the reality is that there's a really high chance that it won't. So when I talk to the growers that I want to collaborate with and explain to them the compromises they don't have to make. In other words, you're gonna to come to my place when the conditions are right and you're not doing your own, everybody rolls their eyes. So the, the the way to start this concept will be to have really clear parameters about how to communicate and how to make those decisions, how to allocate, allocate those costs, and the key will be there's, there's one or two growers that I know that the give and take will be in balance. That's who we're gonna start working with.
1: Ord Valley farmer Fritz Bolton speaking to Alice Marshall about his Nuffield scholarship, which looked at the benefits of farmers working together to plant crops in the small available windows. His Nuffield paper is out now, came out today, and you can read it on the Nuffield Australia website. It is easy to find on the homepage. But what do you make of that, that idea of collaborating with your neighbours? Do you think that applies to other industries, other areas? Are you doing it right now? Let me know on the text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and let me know what's happening in your community. 604. double two six zero four. Seventeen to one. Warmer ocean temperatures and calm seas. Now that seems to be the perfect combination for Western rock lobsters to begin their annual whites migration where freshly malted lobster make their way from shallow waters to deeper ocean. For fishermen like Bruce Cockman, it's a great time to have pots in the water. He says the price isn't great, but that's somewhat offset by some big catches.
11: It's best to have been for a couple of years, which is nice, considering the price is no good, so at least we can catch them easily.
12: There's a lot more around. Everyone seems to be saying that, the amateurs and the professionals. What's causing yep. that?
11: Oh, I think it's just the water temperature's the right and the conditions are so calm. It was perfect whites weather. they just got a long time to sit there with it really being calm for a long time. Last year in uh, November and that October-November period was we had a lot of storms and it was really rough and I think that must really break up them the way they molt and come out of the molt because the stocks, the, science, you know, the stocks is for it to be a bit less this year so it is, it's good they're crawling and, and catchable now. And everyone's yeah, a lot happier seeing a few around. That's for sure.
12: How many have you got in a pot this year? What's what's the record?
11: Oh, I've had a couple of pots with eighty and hundred in. Got a couple mm. of hundreds yesterday, which were amazing. For where we are fishing this time of year, it's the best I've seen. They're you know they're crawling. Mm. That's for sure.
12: Mm. The price is around twenty six, twenty seven dollars a kilo at the moment. So that's not great. But does that is it compensated in some way because you've got that volume coming in?
11: Oh, that's the only trade-off. It's the cost of, like for everyone knows, the costs are really high. Fuel's gone through the roof and bait's doubled in wages, but it's just, yeah, so it's, it's good to catch them. That's the only trade-off. Too much volume for the market, what we've got at the moment, and that's where the price is depressed a bit. A few guys have stopped fishing because the crays are moving out off the beach now, so a few guys will stop and wait, hopefully... Things improve in the new year and go back, but I've sort of got a, quite a lot of quota to catch, so I'll, I'll just keep we'll just keep plotting along and um, see what happens. Might have a couple of extra days off Christmas if we catch a bit ahead of what we the plan was.
12: I notice that the water temperature off Geraldton is sitting two and a half, three degrees, roughly warmer than what it was last year. Do you reckon that that's really got them going because we are sort of getting a bit yeah. a bit warmer water.
11: Yeah, definitely, and and especially through that early October-November period when they were molting, you know, it was significantly warmer then than the same time last year. The old um, Christmas tree tree theory comes in again because the Christmas trees were out really early. It was a good indication. It's a pretty accurate indication. So all the the signs were there it was going to be in early whites and they've kept rolling along like it has been.
12: The price at the moment, pretty flat in the lead up to Christmas. You were in Canberra last week for some export awards, but as part of that trip, you actually got to meet Don Farrell. Did you get any indication from him about when we might see China resume buying or, or if we'll see China resume buying?
11: No, he was pretty confident that it's, it's gonna, China's going to come back with all the ASEAN meetings, and he's had a couple of meetings with different diplomats is what he said, and... Um, so he was, he was really confident, but it's, and it's just up to China, pretty much. Lobster's the last one. Wine's got the tariff on it, which probably he sort of seen to think was coming off soon in March or something, but lobster's the only one. And unfortunately, you know, China is the main market. They just, they really do love lobster. It's a real status symbol. They get excited about them, and China just pay that more than everyone else. And, you know, where the price is at the moment, we were getting this price. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, pre-China. So it's really depressing, depressed how, how bad it is at the moment.
12: We did hear that from the Minister, I think it was last month, Don Farrell said that he expected China to be bringing in Australian lobster by Christmas, but clock's ticking. Do you think that that will happen?
11: He sort of indicated that was his prediction. There wasn't any He didn't get any indication from China about that. I think he's just trying to draw a line under it to make them make them come on board mm. hopefully oh, they do we um you know we know all the tensions with china and what it is but they're an important trading country for for australia and um especially for lobster we really need them now especially in wa where we just don't have the population you know, we'll sell a little bit before christmas but after that there's you know this really dries away the local consumption of lobster that just got to be exported
12: it's not really sustainable the price where it is is it
11: no if it, it's sort of three years now Plus COVID the year before that, which was different, but the three years of the trade trade ban in China, it's really starting to affect. You know, if it it rolled on for a bit longer, really would you know a lot of boats will leave because the cost is just not there. The profit, the catches are sort of dropped away a little bit with COVID. We left, we had some good catch rates because various reasons we caught a bit under the quota allocated and or allowable to catch, and um, so the catch rates are really high. So at least we could catch them cheaply and easily. But the catches are getting harder. Last year was a bit harder than it had been the previous three years. And with the depressed price, it would sort of have some effect, I think, on how many boats are in the industry.
1: Dongora-based commercial fisherman Bruce Cockman speaking to Joe Prendergast. And Bruce is going to steam to Hillary's Boat Harbour on December 23rd for a special sales day in the metropolitan area where you can go along and buy your crayfish for Christmas. 11 minutes to one. Regional businesses in Australia have a huge opportunity to benefit from the closure of mine sites. That's the main finding from a new CSIRO report. The study was led by Dr Guy Boggs from the Cooperative Research Centre for Transformations in Mining Economies. He says the end of mining doesn't mean the end of economic potential.
13: We know that every mine... Yeah, goes through a construction phase, it goes through an operational phase and at some point it it will go through a a closure and and transition into a post-mining use phase. And as the industry has been maturing over the past decades and our standards around closure and rehabilitation requirements and our thinking about what life could be like after a mine does come to its end and the technology innovation that we've seen in this space, what we're seeing is this massive growth in the opportunity to deliver really innovative uh, mine closure solutions, and we're seeing an industry grow around that opportunity.
4: When we think about the mine construction phase and the and the operation phase, we think that where that's where the money really sits. But it was interesting to read in this report that it was sort of more than four billion dollars a year to twenty forty, peaking at sort of around eight billion dollars per year in mine site closure. So there's significant economic potential um, to be i guess reached through the closure as well as the operation and the construction
13: absolutely and and i mean i've worked uh, in this sector for more than 20 years and and one of the most exciting things is seeing these innovative companies that are supporting the mining industry to, to deliver these solutions, you know, everything from high tech, you know, how do we work with AI, how do we work with satellite-based image processing systems to how do we make, you know, really efficient use of the, the money we're spending to, to move the large volumes of material that we need to move around through a rehabilitation process through to the, the types of innovative things that we're seeing now in repurposing. So we're seeing companies coming in with new, Renewable energy systems, saying, oh, "Look, we could make use of of, of old uh, mining shafts, or we could make use of pits for pumped hydro." And so, the scale of that investment that we see, both from the mining industry themselves, but potentially from the other investors that are coming in and, and wanting to to work with the mining industry and regional economic development beyond the life of the mine, is really exciting and and something that I think we haven't really thought about enough, as you noted. But now is the time to to really look at that and say, how, how do we capitalise on that uh, moving forward?
4: The reporters highlighted four key areas of opportunity, uh, and you've, you've touched on some of the, I guess, the practical things there just briefly, but those those four areas are engagement and partnership, waste reduction and recovery, mine rehabilitation and land use transition. How can those four key areas of of opportunity be taken advantage of? How can we um, prepare our local regional businesses or the communities to kind of be able to capitalise on parts or all of those four key areas?
13: Oh, that is a wonderful question and one that we we think a lot about. So one of the things that this report has has done is it's drawn out that we see about 240 mines going through a closure transition uh, between now and 2040 but we also know that there's about 2,200 operating mines across Australia and all of those mines are looking much more closely at the types of things and actions they can be putting in place over the life of the mine to prepare them for the closure transition that comes into the future. So things like the Engagement Partnership the opportunity that, that that lines. We we know that the earlier on that we can engage post-mining industry, regional communities, Indigenous communities into the, the vision for what life looks like after the mine, the more likely we are to achieve success. So there's a lot of investment in the types of organisations that are working with, not just with the mining companies, but with those areas of government, those areas of local government, and those areas of uh, First Nations leadership to say, well, what does your vision look like for life beyond the mine and how do we co-design and build these mutually beneficial partnerships over the life of mine so we we, we're capitalizing on those opportunities and some of them can be things like thinking about a pivot from say water quality monitoring or uh, seed collection or, or, or soils work that's happening over the life of the mine some of those jobs might continue well beyond the life of mine so so how can we help those local businesses that are being set up to to run um, think about a business plan that is not only just catering to the operational life of the mine but to to those opportunities that that are going to emerge after after the mine goes. The waste re- reduction and resource recovery is a really interesting here um, story and and here we see parallels between the oil and gas industry and the mining industry where we see recycling of the material that comes out of those uh, say the steel that comes out of uh, out of those um, facilities. We see in, in the mining environment, waste rock um, actually being able to use be used for, for multiple purposes, how do we capitalise on that, and bring that into the operational phase of the life of the mine. So a lot of these things are happening whilst the mine is running and will happen beyond the life of, life of mine.
1: Dr Guy Boggs, he is the CEO of the Cooperative Research Centre for Transformations in Mining Economies which has funded the study done for that CSIRO report. He was speaking to Michelle Stanley, 5 to 1. Well, when livestock prices were at their lowest this year, meat work companies were saying they didn't have the killing space and in some cases that was because they couldn't find enough workers. One company has decided to do something about that. The Australian Meat Group has just spent $300 million refurbishing its Kudamundra abattoir in southern New South Wales. And as Emily Doak discovered, it's now high-tech and when fully operational, AMG plans to process a 1,000 head of cattle and up to 7,500 lambs a day.
10: AMG bought the mothballed Kudamundra abattoir in 2019 and Managing Director Gilbert Cabral says its redevelopment has allowed for modern technology to be incorporated throughout.
14: The decision was made to actually demolish the majority of of the plant and to streamline the operation to modern standards and efficiencies to the level of productivity that we were looking for.
10: When fully operational in 2025, it's anticipated about a 1,000 people will be employed on site. And with workforce shortages in the meat processing sector, Mr Cabral says the plant's been designed to minimise the need for highly skilled workers using cutting-edge technology to simplify processes.
14: COVID situation with lack of workers and skilled workers in the area and all that, so that's been a lot of time designing engineering skills out of the process and makes it a lot easier for our key trainers to train a bigger groups of, of, of workers. Going forward, When we still need a lot of people. It's not, we're not going to be reducing the amount of people, in, in, but uh, we'll be able to produce more product per kilo per person.
10: So you've made this investment and competed these funds at a time when we saw livestock prices at, at record levels. What gave you the confidence to do that?
14: Forecasting is too difficult in the livestock industry. We had three years of continuous rain so eventually the rain will have to stop and then we'll go into a cycle where things start to dry out a bit. But that's not that's not why we do it, it's because we love doing it, we love setting up plants, we love processing, setting up teams and procurement and process and sell. So we are always backed ourselves to do that regardless.
10: We had a bit of a walk around through this morning and at the moment there's still workers who are putting the final touches on things. How do you feel? Walking through today, after what you've been through in terms of the delays with supply chains and COVID, to see it so close to being operational?
14: Yeah, it was pretty exciting today. It's all looking pretty pretty new, pretty shiny, pretty clean, uh, all, all coming together. We start doing some trials next week, so it's all pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, we've still got some people working in ongoing development on so the side. We're still going to be building and continue to build on site for the next probably 12 to 18 months.
1: Gilbert Cabrail, the Managing Director of the Australian Meat Group. A couple of minutes to one here on the Country Hour and there is a cattle sale. It's on right now at Mount Barker, uh, just near Albany, where about 1,270 wieners are on offer. The sale only started at 11 and it is still going. Tracy Kilner is still taking notes on proceedings, so she'll summarise the prices on tomorrow's Country Hour. A minute and a half away from the news at one. Earlier we were talking about the collaboration that is being considered in the Kimberley, in the Ord, with the cotton growers in that area. And that's just one way to kind of get all the work done at the prime time for uh, seeding of the cotton. And in response to that, this text, collaboration in agriculture, all comes down to the people. Some of my neighbours and I will bend over backwards to help each other and ask nothing in return. Other neighbours, I won't even go to their fires. Thank you for that. And this text We had six stations in the Mekathara area that banded together to do the mustering. Without this collaboration, we cannot survive. Full experience crew, no wages, plus the benefits of a social event. Good to hear that. And Greg in Conding Up says Great show, Belinda. Consider the balance between farm emissions, methane, fertiliser, and what carbon is being pulled from the atmosphere back into the soil with photosynthesising plants in well-managed grazing programs. Hopefully, government considers the whole picture as methane emissions is only one part of the climate change equation. Thank you for that, Greg. We'll finish on that note. Time for the news. It is one o'clock.
9: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.